Take your Bibles and turn right over to the book of Daniel. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Last Sunday, we did take a look at this text, but we did sort of a summary thing on it. We didn't expound each line, uh, but we did take a look at it, and I identified and described 12 people and places from these verses uh, for the purpose of building context and a foundation for uh, this particular section and for the rest of the book of Daniel as we continue to study. I think it's important, context is important. We need to know the who, what, where, when, and why of these books as we study them. And that is technically what gives the verses their meaning. You know, these things were written by a certain person to certain people for a particular purpose in certain languages, yada, yada, yada. And they contain certain doctrinal truths. So we looked at 12 people and places from 1 through 7 last week. Another thing that we learned too was that God had a purpose for Daniel and his three friends, and that is why he allowed them to be exiled uh, with the others and with the king over to Babylon. Uh, typically, the way that we want to look at the exiles, that those were God's judgment and discipline on his people. Uh, and you know, Daniel and his friends were righteous dudes. They were godly men. And so one of the things that kept coming to my mind last week as I was studying is, okay, so there's people in Judah or in Jerusalem that definitely needed to be disciplined for their idolatry and these sorts of things they were doing. Daniel and his friends were not doing these things. So why did they get sucked in and, and taken out of their homeland and taken over to a foreign land as well? Well, some of us might not think that that's fair or right. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that God had a purpose for Daniel and his friends, and that's why he allowed that to take place. And he was planning to use them in Babylon. And so it wasn't about discipline or punishment with Daniel. It was about purpose. And, uh, and I, I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in knowing that uh, whether I'm doing something right or wrong, God will bring us through situations for divinely appointed purposes. It doesn't always have to be because we're getting his, you know, he's putting a hammer on us because we've done something wrong. And uh, sometimes God allows us. I mean, look at the story of Job. Job wasn't wrapped up in some sort of sin or doing something wrong, but he experienced basically hell on earth. And God had a purpose for him and brought him through that and achieved, God achieved his purposes and the purposes for Job. And so I find great consolation knowing that God loves us and that he leads us through difficult times and situations for a purpose. And that's what happened. And we looked at that and that was, uh, that was encouragement. This morning, we, were, we are going to discover that Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, he's the one who uh, besieged Jerusalem and exiled these men. We're going to discover that he had a purpose for them. And it didn't square with God's purpose, but he actually had some objectives and things that he was after. And so we're going to discover those things and flesh that out and study that, and, and we'll see how God encourages us uh, throughout this message and then toward the end. The title of this sermon is Relocated, Reprogrammed, and Reassigned. Uh, let's pray and then get to work expositing the text. Uh, Father, we yield ourselves to you and we ask that you would teach us in the name of Jesus. May you be glorified. May the Holy Spirit um, exercise power in this room and in our hearts that we might hear the truth and understand the truth and be convicted by the truth and be changed and transformed by the truth. That is a miracle of grace, and we pray 
that for each of us today. We thank you uh, for what you'll do in advance, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's pick it right up there in uh, chapter 1, verse 1a. I've had to divide some of these verses into A, B, and C, uh, and you'll see why over time here. 1a, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Just stop right there. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now, we did learn last week, if you were with us, if not, you can always go back and, and listen because we post everything on our website. But last week, we did learn about Jehoiakim. We didn't exhaust the man and study every facet of his life and all that, but we did take a look at him according to Scripture. We gained some knowledge and some wisdom on who he is. And just quickly, as a reminder, Jehoiakim was the son of King Josiah, and Josiah was one of Judah's best kings, probably the best king over Judah. He was a great king. However, Jehoiakim was not like his dad. Uh, Scriptures say that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, In other words, he was a bad king. He was not a good leader. He was not a good role model. He was not good to his people, and he certainly wasn't good to the Lord. And we learned that his kingdom was characterized by luxury, and I would say that that would be excess. Uh, And his kingdom was characterized by extortion. What is extortion? It means to force people to pay you money. It could be bribery or blackmail, or you could threaten them with violence. It's just to take money from people under a threat. And then his kingdom was characterized by idolatry. And idolatry, by definition, according to Scripture, has to do with exchanging God's glory for created things. It's when we love created things and we pursue created things more than we love God, our Creator, Redeemer, Savior, and uh, that's idolatry. Now, God warned Jehoiakim and the people of Judah repeatedly through the prophet Jeremiah. And and some of these warnings were recorded on scrolls and then delivered to the king as he was, you know, in his palace, if you will. These scrolls were delivered and then read before the king. But Jehoiakim, we learn in Jeremiah uh, chapter 36, what did he do when these people and these messengers brought God's warnings and word to him? He took the scrolls, rolled them back up, and then burned them. He didn't want to have anything to do with the word of God. He didn't want to hear about, you know, where he's wrong or what's going to happen or how the Babylonians are going to come because these guys prophesied to him, hey, your nation's going to be taken, you know, because of your sin, because of your rebellion, because of your idolatry. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. He's much like folks are today in our community, and quite frankly, even as a believer, it's kind of, I still have a rebellious heart, so it's not like I always love the Word of God. Sometimes it challenges me, and I'm like, this is lame. But he was responding to the Word of God, how all people, apart from the saving work of the Holy Spirit, respond to the Word of God. Rebellion, rejection, I hate it, get it away from me. I'm not going to open my Bible, I don't want to see it, I burn my Bible, what have you. He was essentially burning Bibles. And during the third year of his reign, and that's what we're reading about in our text, God had had enough. That's it. It was almost like he gave him three grace strikes, and the third one struck on his third year. That's it. Now, it is important to note that Daniel employed the Babylonian mode of reckoning dates here rather than the Jewish mode. Okay, so when we see how it says in the third year, if you, if you jump over into the book of Kings, you'll notice that it says the fourth year. 
And so people will take this and they'll say, well, this is a contradiction. I told you the scriptures are filled with errors and lies and they're wrong. There's no contradiction. Daniel was using the Babylonian mode to reconcile dates, which was a different calendar and different system. Very, very true. So we want to notice that, just in case you're reading somewhere else and you see that this actually happened during the fourth year. It actually did happen according to the Jewish calendar and way of reconciling dates. It did happen during the fourth year of his reign. But as I said, God had had enough. That was it. It was time for action. And what happened during his third slash fourth year of reigning. Look at 1b. What took place? 1b says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's a neat word, isn't it? Besieged. It's not a word that we use. Uh, We would say attacked or something like that. Now, we learned about Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, and Jerusalem last week, right? Again, you can go back and listen to that. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, the chief city or capital city of the territory known as Babylonia or Shinar or even Chaldea. It has three interchangeable names. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar was literally, and and I'm talking about historically, at this point in history, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world. Uh, He would have been like uh, Alexander the Great during his height. This guy was the most powerful man in the world, and Babylon was the largest and most glorious and opulent city in the world during this time. So Nebuchadnezzar is the king of this massive city that is glorious and opulent, and he is the most powerful man in the world. He has the most powerful military, he has the most money, he has it all. He was no joke. And it says that Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem. He came to Jerusalem. Now, this happened to be the first of three Babylonian invasions. Okay, so there were three that are recorded in Scripture and three that are recorded in history. This was the first one, and it took place in 605 B.C. The second invasion occurred in 598 to 597 B.C. And the third and final in 588 to 586 B.C. And that invasion culminated with basically the destruction of the city, the destruction of the temple, and pretty much a full exile of all the remaining people. And they went into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom of the Jews. Uh, The northern kingdom was called Israel, but it was destroyed by the Assyrians about a hundred years earlier. So basically you had one place in Israel where most of the Jews congregated and hung out, and it was in this capital place in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem, which is the capital city. Now when Nebuchadnezzar who was the most powerful man in the world and and led the most beautiful and amazing city and had the most insane army and military uh, techniques and these sorts of things. What did he do? He came to Jerusalem and then he came and he besieged it. Besieged in Hebrew means to tie up or to bind or to encircle. Uh, I get the idea of the Indian circling the wagon. Remember how that all went down? No, you don't, because you weren't old enough. But we've seen movies. In fact, I was watching a movie last night where it seemed like they were doing that. And I thought, hey, there's an illustration. So it has to do with tying up or binding or encircling. 
Now you must know that Jerusalem at this time in history was very, very well fortified. It featured high walls and the entrance gate uh, was massive and thick and strong and heavy. Uh, And so it was a very, very well fortified city. The word besieged implies that it took Nebuchadnezzar time to overcome Jerusalem's defenses. In other words, that it took him time to get through the wall to get into the inhabitants. It's like they shut the city up and he had to bang on the wall until he could get through and get in. Historians say that it took Nebuchadnezzar three months to breach the wall to get in. Ninety days of constant ramming and bombarding and attack, and he probably used some of those weapons that you've either seen in video games or seen on TV, the trebuchets that, you know, they're like ancient mortars that launch heavy stones or fireballs. He was no doubt attacking this wall probably in multiple places over and over and over, probably trying to find a weakened place and then just hammering and hammering and hammering till he could get through. And I'm sure the Jews on the other side were thinking, he's not going to get in because we don't play games with our engineering But it took him three months, and after three months, he got through the wall. Now, they say the same thing. Historians say the same thing about the second invasion. It took 90 days or three months as well. However, during the third and final invasion, it took him nearly three years to break through. 30 months instead of three months. And I thought, man, years before, you got through in 90 days Twice you blew through. Why did it take you almost three years to get through? Well, there was a lot of time that passed between the second and third invasion, and it's probably likely that the Jews girded up the walls and had better defenses and were better prepared and equipped to deal with the attack. I don't know for sure, uh, but it took him 90 days and 90 days and then 30 months to get through. Now, it's also important to note that this first invasion marked the beginning of what the Bible calls the time of the Gentiles. Okay, so when Nebuchadnezzar came in 605, what we're reading about in our text, and he blew through the wall, that initiated something in the Bible known as the time of the Gentiles. Jesus pointed to the time of the Gentiles in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. Speaking of Israel and speaking of the people of Judah and and Jerusalem, he said this, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus was sort of prophetically speaking about something that's happening during his time and will happen in the future, but he was talking about something that began in the past as well. And it's this, it's this interesting time period where Gentiles will inhabit Jerusalem in the land of Israel, which has not happened in the past. I mean, you got to think back to the Exodus and you got to think of when Israel conquered that land. They came through and drove all the Gentiles out of that land and they ruled and reigned in that land for centuries and centuries and centuries. And then... Because of their idolatry and adultery and turning against the Lord and worshiping false gods and worshiping themselves or however you want to describe it, God, you know, God's covenant promise to them was, man, if you worship me and me alone, you'll stay in the land. If not, you'll, you'll be removed. And 605 is when this happened. And it, it's never been the same since, has it? 
Right now you have Jerusalem that's divided into sections and, and you have Palestinians on one side and, and, and they're Gentiles, they're not Jewish. And then you have Jews on the other side and, and, and there's great conflict between them. And Even in 1949 when, when our government or NATO, whoever came up with the idea to give Israel back its country, it did that, but there's been Gentiles in that region the whole time. And there will continue to be Gentiles in that region until the times of the Gentiles ends. And when will it end? At the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus returns, he will subdue the nations and drive the Gentiles out of the promised land and redeem his people and give them back their land. So it's an interesting thing that's happened. And that, that would explain much of the conflict over in Jerusalem and throughout Palestine and Israel. The time of the Gentiles has been activated and it's going right now. So he comes and he besieges the city. Now look at verse 2. And it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, that's Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So verse 2 has to do with relocation. It has to do with relocation. When Nebuchadnezzar breached the wall and entered the city, he, he encountered little to no resistance, and Jehoiakim was immediately captured. Now, for being such a fortified city and such a powerful nation and people over time, you would think that he would have had a really hard time once he got through the wall, taking out, the, taking out his enemies and taking anyone prisoner. But he had no resistance. He faced almost no resistance. There was no fighting when he got through the wall, nor do I think there was any fighting on the outside of the wall. He was fighting the wall. That was it. And I think that this is due to the fact that Jehoiakim and his people, they might have remembered God's instructions through the prophet Jeremiah not to resist the invaders. And this might be why they didn't put up a fight. And Jeremiah actually told him, hey, they're coming. Because of your rebellion, they're coming. And don't put up a fight. It won't go well for you. And so I'm thinking that, okay, look, the guy burned the word. He didn't want to hear the scriptures. He didn't want to listen to the truth. He didn't want to listen to Jeremiah's prophecies and these sorts of things. But somehow maybe, oh, oh, wait a minute, they're actually here. So what he wrote to us is true. Oh, oh, wait a minute, they've gotten through the wall. Maybe we ought to heed some of Jeremiah's words. Lay down your arms and put up your arms. I think that's probably how it went down. Why did God give Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? Why was he captured? It was, as I've mentioned earlier and last week, idolatry. When we assign supreme worth and value to a created thing rather than to God, we commit idolatry. And this is exactly what Jehoiakim did. He valued luxury and he valued money. He valued things, created things, more than God. And he no doubt worshipped some of the false deities in that region. And there were plenty of false gods, and there still are today. In doing so, he not only committed idolatry, he also committed adultery against the God who made a covenant with the Jewish people. God promised to prosper and protect them if they upheld their end of the covenant, which had to do with staying true to him. If the Jews worshipped God alone, they would remain in the promised land. But if they turned to created things and pagan deities or to themselves, he would give them over to their enemies and remove them from the promised land. 
because of his idolatry, because he committed adultery against his God and king. He turned to other things, created things. Because he did that, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. In other words, he allowed him to be captured. Now, it should be understood that if God had not granted Jehoiakim's capture to Nebuchadnezzar, it would not have happened. God is sovereign and He does control all events. And I know that's hard to get our minds around. And I know that you're thinking of these police officers in Baton Rouge and these terrorist attacks in Nice. Somehow God, He doesn't have to do those events with His own hands, but He will work through them to accomplish His purposes. And I'm just telling you that Nebuchadnezzar could have been the baddest dude in the world the most powerful and most powerful military, if God, who is sovereign, who controls all events, if he hadn't granted the victory to him to get through the wall in the first place, if he didn't say, Nebuchadnezzar, you can take Jehoiakim, it would have never happened. You, you think of people like uh, Gideon, who had a, a military of you know, 100 and less, and he was able to defeat massive, massive armies and foes. God granted to Gideon his enemies. He put them in his hand. God is the one that controls these things. God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who makes this happen or that happen or works through it. Now, I would say this. God's sovereignty can be seen in another way here in this text. King Nebuchadnezzar was unaware of how God was using him. King Nebuchadnezzar, he worshipped false gods. He worshipped Marduk and and Aku and these weird, you know, like, what kind of, what's this God's about? You know, this is the spear God and this is the moon God. And he worshiped these other gods. He had no comprehension of Yahweh or Adonai or whatever name you want to call God. He, he, just, he didn't have any idea that he was being used by God right here at this point. He had his own agenda. He had invaded Jerusalem for his own purposes, right? He was seeking to expand his territory. And if you look on that little map, it includes this area. That wasn't part of his territory before 605. He gained it in 605, 606. He, he, he went into Jerusalem not because God said, hey, go and deal with my people and discipline my people for me. That's not why he went. He went to expand his territory, to expand his fame, to expand his glory. But the sovereign Lord was using him to accomplish his purposes for the people of Judah, and for the people of Babylon. God uses people all the time. We tend to think as believers, well, He just uses believers. He didn't use anyone else. Are you kidding me? You might work in a secular environment for a secular boss who does not love Jesus, and that's okay because that's going on. That's our world. Does your boss not give you a paycheck? Is God not using your boss to provide for your family? No one is out of reach of God. He uses everything, and it says in 1 Corinthians, I believe, all things in the end will redound for His glory. So he, he is in control of all of it. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, He's working it all out to accomplish His purposes for His name and for His glory, and if you're a believer, for your good. And that's exactly what we see playing out right here in the text. Nebuchadnezzar's like, hey, I'm going to go make myself look real good. God's like, you're going to do something for me. You don't even know it. That's what's playing out. So Jehoiakim was captured and relocated to Babylon, and the times of the Gentiles began. 
Jehoiakim was eventually returned to Jerusalem to serve as Nebuchadnezzar's tributary, but that only lasted a few years. Nebuchadnezzar, he took Jehoiakim, but he took some other things with him. He also took, it says in the text, some of the vessels of the house of God. These were the sacred items that belonged to the temple, probably the gold and silver basins. And I read that there was a thousand of each of them, and each one weighed a lot. And so by today's gold value standards, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars worth of vessels taken right here. And there were billions of dollars worth of gold in the temple, uh, maybe 60 or $70 billion worth of gold in the temple at this time. But this guy took probably the gold and silver basins, probably a 1,000 of each of them. And I don't know the exact weight of each one, but I know they were worth hundreds of millions by today's standards. He took the vessels of the house of God, probably the gold and silver basins, Nebuchadnezzar brought the vessels, right? He relocated them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, this was customary. Uh, This was normal. Conquerors would often return home with their enemies' valuables, especially if they were religious valuables belonging to your enemy's gods. Right? They would come back with their enemies' valuables and they would parade them through the cities, through their primary cities. They would have a great processional with the king out in front and, and the military behind him. Or the king would be sitting on his throne while the military parades in front of him all the enemies they captured and all the, all the pirates' booty that they captured, if you will. Doing this symbolized victory and it symbolized the submission of your enemy. You come back with his valuables, with his money, with his possessions, with his people. It's like, we whooped them. And everyone thinks, wow, look at how they submitted to him. Look at how our enemy submitted to our king. So it has to do with victory and submission. Nebuchadnezzar then placed the vessels into the treasury of his god. Which god? Probably Marduk or Marduk. Marduk was the chief god of Babylonian mythology, like Zeus in Greek mythology, or Jupiter in Roman mythology. Now, I want you to ponder for a moment what happened here. I want you to think about the implications of what we're reading. The taking of these sacred vessels that were used in the house of Yahweh, transported to a foreign pagan land, placed in the temple of Marduk a false god. Just think about that for a moment. These things were used in service to Yahweh and now they were going to be used in service to Marduk at the Babylonian temple. First thing that comes to mind is how disgraceful, how disgusting, how wrong, how impious. This is insane. I can't believe this is happening. It's a great injustice. God, aren't you ticked off that the things that were used in service to you are now going to be used in service to some God that doesn't even exist? Some God that has the affections and attention of a great number of people, and it's not even a true God. Well, let me try to put a positive spin on it. The removal and reassignment of these gold and silver vessels, it seems impious, it seems out of line, but it was really the best thing for Judah. Like many Americans, the Judeans worshipped the almighty dollar, especially Jehoiakim. In removing the vessels, God removed the objects that these folks put 
their hope and trust in, the source of their security, money. In my opinion, the removal of these sacred items, these valuable items, was an act of mercy on God's part. It was an act of mercy on God's part. And you have to keep in mind, there were several exiles. There were still a lot of Israelites or Judeans living in Jerusalem who were still caught up in this fixation on money and idolatry. The fact of the matter is God loves his people so much that he not only exposes our idols and warns us about them, he sometimes totally removes them from our presence, doesn't he? He even removes the things that hinder our progress like girlfriends and boyfriends and addictions and ignorance and so on and so forth. Does he not do this? So often we get messed up over a relationship that's dissolved and, you know, some boyfriend or some girlfriend, well, you need to have the right perspective. Maybe you weren't matched well with them and they were hindering your sanctification, your growth, your holiness. Maybe that's what was going on. Were they dragging you down? Were they more like an anchor? And here you are mourning over the loss of this person. And maybe, just maybe, your gracious Heavenly Father removed that person from your life because of that, because he knows what's best for you. It happens all the time. He does it with jobs. Some guys get so wrapped up in their job, they drop out and they aren't at church anymore. They're hardly around at home taking care of their family. And it's all career, career, career. And then, and then what they perceive as a catastrophe, you're fired! Like Trump, you're fired, right? That happens, and then this is the worst thing that's ever happened to us. Buddy, it could be the best thing that's ever happened to you. If your whole life is about that dumb job, which is just a means to give you income. Gosh, we shouldn't. Don't turn these things into idols. They'll be taken. God does this. He does whatever is necessary to ensure that we will receive His promises and arrive at our heavenly destination, which is with Him for eternity. The removal of these vessels had to do with judgment. It had to do with discipline, no doubt. But it also had to do with mercy. It had to do with mercy. Why? Because God cares more about His people than golden vessels and sacred items. He does. He cares more about His people. Well, I use this thing in honor of you. You know what? He really doesn't care about the thing. What He cares about is you. And if He has to take the thing out, He will. If that's what messes up the relationship with Him. And we live in America where it's all about things. It's all about stuff. It's all about making an appearance. God isn't interested in things. He's interested in you. He wants you. He doesn't want your stuff. What else did Nebuchadnezzar relocate? Look at verses 3 and 4a. 3 and 4a. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz. Guys got Penaz. Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Now we learned about Ashpenaz last week. Again, you can go back and listen. He was Nebuchadnezzar's chief eunuch, maybe even like his chief administrator. He was a top dude for this king. He accompanied Nebuchadnezzar during the invasion and was instructed to locate and retrieve some of the people of Israel. 
Nebuchadnezzar told him what to look for. Okay, I, I, want, I want some dudes, and here's what I want you to find. Okay, and we see in verses 3 and 4a, Daniel lists eight qualities. I'll just go over them. Number one, they had to be of the royal family or of the nobility. Okay, so King Nebuchadnezzar is of a royal family. He's nobility. He's looking for some people that come out of that in the Jewish style or in the Jewish way. He wants princes and and things like that. That's what he wants. He wants nobility. He wants people of the royal family. And some speculate that he wanted, you know, young guys from the royal family and they would be the seed uh, of, of, you know, of uh, the Jewish royalty and that they could procreate and continue that. I don't know if I believe that because I don't think this guy cares about what happens to the Jews. But some say these were the seed of, of Israel, you know, maybe it's true. So they had to be of royal family, of the nobility. Secondly, they had to be youths without blemish. Okay, so, so uh, I, 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 when I think of blemish, I think of, uh, you know, I think of proactive and I think of acne. Uh, it's a little bit more than having clear skin, uh, right? It, it means that um, they can't have any uh, visible uh, kind of defect or something of that nature. And I don't like to think of those things as, as defects with people. I don't think it's, uh, I, I just, I don't like that. And I'm not a politically correct kind of guy. I like to think of people uh, as specially gifted uh, when they have, uh, instead of handicapped, you know, they're handy equipped. You know, I, I like to throw that grace and mercy at them because God created them and he values them just like he does us. But in this case, these folks could not have any of those sort of blemishes. They had to have, you know, good skin and, and their bodies had to function right and all that. And, and number three is interesting, right? They had to be of good appearance. So they had to be handsome. They had to be good looking. You know, no, you know, you, you, couldn't, have any, you, you couldn't have any of that going on, right? You know, they, these guys had to be like chiseled and good looking and, and all of that. And so, uh, and, and this, was, this was typical back in that day too, for, especially for pagan kings, that those that they surrounded themselves with were some of the best looking people in their society or culture, kind of like the Hollywood kind of mentality. So these guys had to be of the nobility, royal family. They had to be used without blemish. They couldn't have any kind of defect at all. They had to be really, 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 really good looking. There's my Zoolander plug, right? Really, really good looking. Any other Zoolander fans here? It's good to know that I'm not the only idiot in the room. All right. Number four, people are like, what's a Zoolander? It's Greek for stupid movie. Uh, (laughs) Number four, they had to be skillful in all wisdom. Okay, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the applying of knowledge. So they had to have vast and great knowledge, but wisdom, you can have all the knowledge in the world. If you don't know how to utilize that knowledge and apply it, then you don't have wisdom. Wisdom is the applying of knowledge. And so these guys had to be very wise. And it's interesting, they're youths without blemish, but they had to be skillful in all wisdom. And and I'm thinking these guys were probably about 14 or 15. How many of you have a 14-year-old or know one who has spectacular wisdom? Put your hand back down. You do not know one. No, your kid is not that great. I mean, think about it. 14? When I was 14, I was like, you know? My mom's like, you might want to stop sucking your thumb and twirling your hair. You know? Oh, why? I like it. You know? I mean, think about it. 
Skillful in all wisdom. That is incredible. They had to know how to apply knowledge. And then obviously they had to be, number five, endowed with knowledge. So wisdom and knowledge go hand in hand. You know things, you rightly apply those things. They had to have that as well. Six, they had to be endowed with understanding. I think the way that we want to interpret understanding from Hebrew here is that they had to have good comprehension. Not so much as that they you know, they know some things, because that has to do with knowledge, but it has to do with being able to comprehend what's being talked about, what's being discussed, or problems, or things like this. So they had to have good understanding, a.k.a. comprehension. They had to be endowed with learning, okay? Well, isn't wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, doesn't it have to do with learning? Not necessarily. I think learning has to do with education. These guys had to be well-educated. And again, I'm thinking 14, I'm thinking Somerset, you know? Well, back in these days, no, no, you you could be 14 years old and know the whole Old Testament. That's how these Jewish kids were raised. They were schooled from birth on. It's pretty spectacular. Their standards were incredible. And so they had to have a good education. They had to have a good pedigree, if you will. And lastly, number eight, they had to be competent to stand in the king's palace. So what did they have to have there? Competency. Okay, they had to be trusted with things. They had to be capable and able to do and to, and to progress and, and to complete certain things. He had to be competent to stand in the king's palace. So if Ashpenaz was successful in locating and retrieving people with these qualities, what was the next step? Okay, I got you a team. I got you a group. What, what was the next step? Look at verses 4b and 5a. And to teach them the literature And language of the Chaldeans, that's the people group, that's Nebuchadnezzar, they're Chaldeans. Uh, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated, it says, for three years. So, verses 4b through 5a have to do with reprogramming. Okay, we already looked at being relocated. This has to do with reprogramming. Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to completely reprogram this goop. Goop. They were a mighty goop. If they were goop, they wouldn't have made it because they had to be without blemish. I hate getting old. R's fall out. You say things that are just stupid. Anyone else have this problem? Seriously, anyone else have this problem? Really? Nobody else does? What? You don't have, you're older than me. You don't have, your dad doesn't even have this problem. I say things that are so stupid. I was like, I called Jesus Jeevus one day. I was like, Jeevus. And then somebody yelled, butthead. I was like, Jeevus and butthead? What are you talking about? It was in junior high. Of course, you never say Jeevus there. Just things happen. You know, you just, you can't. I'm taking this focus factor too, and I've never been more unfocused. So Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to completely reprogram this group of Jewish royalty and nobility. His strategy was twofold. So he had a two-pronged approach at getting these guys to where he wanted them to be. Firstly, re-education, right? That's the new literature. That's the new language. And then you have new diet. And I thought, you really need to change their diet to get them to where you want? Absolutely. It was a big part of it. So re-education and new diet. That's his two-pronged approach. Re-education had to do with teaching this group what it says right there in the text. The literature and the language of the Chaldeans. New diet had to do with providing them with what? A daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now, I thought right there that would be the biggest blessing of all because you know darn well kings eat good. And, and, right? 
Come on now, man. Right? Kings eat really, really good. I would think they eat really, really good, especially if you're a Babylonian king. You know, pork chops that you've just you to melt in your mouth. You know, they got the food and the wine must have been incredible because this guy's the king and he gets the absolute best. I thought, wow, what a blessing that would be. Uh, not really. The reprogramming, it says here in the text, the reprogramming process would take how long? Three years. Three years. That's a long time to get people from point A to point B. Constant food and wine and constant literature training and, and language and all this. Just what an intensive, intensive program it must have been. So what was Nebuchadnezzar's end goal? Okay, so why did he... He got the youth. He, he, he wanted to reprogram and put them through this process for what purpose? Well, it has to do with reassignment. It has to do with a new job. Look at 5b. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the new king. Those who were relocated and reprogrammed were to be reassigned to the king's service. But it was more than that. Ancient kings had different types of servants. They had food and beverage servants. They had wardrobe servants. They had hair and makeup uh, servants. I don't know if the guy kings back then had makeup, uh, you know, like the English kings did. But they certainly had appearance king, uh, servants that helped them look good at all times. Probably even, I don't know if they had fitness servants, if they had their own trainers. I don't know. But they had a, a multitude of servants that would help them. Now, has anyone watched the series Downton Abbey? Which is like one of my favorite. I mean, I'll admit it. I don't care. It's okay. You've never seen this. You've got to see this. It's unbelievable. There's a wealthy, wealthy English family, 1800s, early 1900s, tons of money. They don't even brush their own hair. Okay? The women sit there and servants brush their hair. And I was like, that would be like it's nappy. And that's really cool. I mean, their food, everything was taken care of for them. This is how it was in this day. You had servants for everything. And they also had servants who do what? What does it say in our text? Stand before the king. These servants provided the king with wise counsel, with information, with problem solving. They, they were so essential to the king's role in leadership. They helped him sort through the affairs of his kingdom. Uh, this is why they had to possess the qualities of verses 3 and 4. And this is why they received three years of special intensive training. The servants who stood before the king are the highest servants. They weren't like the hair and makeup servants. They weren't like the food servants. They weren't like those ones. They weren't like the wardrobe. These were the highest servants. They would be like the king's board of directors or, or appointees or, or maybe like his legal team. These are the high servants. Okay? Look at verse 6. And here's where Daniel lists the ones who were selected, or at least some of them. Among these were Daniel, speaking of himself, the author of this book, the prophet, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now, we talked about these guys last week as well, so I'd point you back to that message because I could spend all day talking about them. I'll just give you a quick rundown. 
All four were friends. All four were teenagers. All four were royalty or nobility. All four had God-honoring Hebrew names. Each of these names that I just read, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they all had these Yahweh Jewish God-exalting beautiful names. All four worshipped and served Yahweh. Uh, So they were devoted, they were devout, they were committed, they were pious. They all worshipped the God of the Jews. All four were upright and righteous, which means they weren't caught up in the idolatry and the other things that their, their brethren, Judeans, were mixed up in. These guys were righteous dudes. They were committed. All four were exiled. All four were of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the what of Judah? The lion of Judah. Okay, so that's a quick rundown. These guys were four of the guys that were selected to be a part of this this team, this reprogramming, all of that, this reassignment. It's them. That's the focus of this book is on these guys. Now look at verse 7. Verse 7. I need a little coffee. You'd be surprised how many words I spit out in an hour. Just ask my wife. I'm spitting them out all the time with her. And she's like, oh, give me a break. She gets this sermon in stages throughout the week. She's like, I don't even have to go to church. I'm like, yeah, you do. It's not just about that. Now, she, she wants to be here, but it's funny. We have these, you know, we walk five, five, five miles or whatever every day, and we try to at least, and we get up, and, and I'm just kind of preaching to her as we're walking, and she's just, you know, got her headphones on, so, you know. Where was I? <laughs> Seven, thank you. You get on these little, that's another thing. You forget what you're saying and you mispronounce words and then you completely forget what you're talking about. That's my favorite of all. Verse seven, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Abednego. Verse seven, also has to do with reassignment, okay? Verse 5b shows that Daniel and his friends were reassigned to stand before the king, a.k.a. serve Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 7 shows that they were also reassigned to serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods. We know this to be true because the names they were given represented Babylonian deities, We talked about that last week. They had these God-honoring Hebrew names, and those names were changed once they got to Babylon to Chaldean names that didn't point to the the God of the Jews. They pointed to the God of the Babylonians. So they were given these names. And the purpose of those names was in service to not only Nebuchadnezzar, but in service to his gods. If these men had been priests, they were royalty, they weren't priests, but if they had been priests back in Jerusalem, he probably would have made them priests of his God. And that wouldn't have gone down well for these guys. They probably wouldn't have done it. They probably would have just died. There's no way. Daniel and his friends were servants of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. Nebuchadnezzar was absolutely determined to change that. The names they were given reflected this reality. John Calvin, he said, The design of the king 
was to lead these youths to adopt the customs of the Chaldeans that they might have nothing in common with the chosen people of Israel. This is not just a relocation. It is a complete and absolute reprogramming to take them from point A to point B, to think completely differently, to speak completely differently, to eat and drink completely differently, and to worship completely differently. An all-out reprogramming is what this was. That's what Calvin says. Now, next Sunday, Lord willing, we will begin to look at how Daniel and his friends responded to what was happening to them. Now, I'd like to begin to wrap this up, give you an application. What have we learned this morning? Well, if we were to boil it down, Nebuchadnezzar relocated Daniel and his friends to Babylon, and when they arrived, he attempted to reprogram them, and then he was going to reassign them to serve him and his gods, right? That's what verses 1 through 7 show us. That's what we've learned today. Now listen carefully. In a similar way, this is what the devil tries to do with us. You see, we could take Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and we could make metaphors out of them. Nebuchadnezzar being the devil, Babylon being the world. We could easily do that. In a similar way, this is what the devil tries to do with us. Like Nebuchadnezzar, the devil tries to relocate us. He works to relocate us constantly. He wants to put us back into his kingdom, into Babylon, into the world. Into the world. He wants us to, well, let's just keep moving and you'll see. Like Nebuchadnezzar, the devil tries to reprogram us. Okay, so he wants to relocate us. He's working to do that. I want to get you back in the world from the place you were delivered. I want you back. And then he also tries to reprogram us. He wants us to speak the language of Babylon. Unwholesome talk, unhelpful words, profanity, coarse joking, gossip, lies, slander, hypocrisy, etc., etc. He wants us to live out the customs of Babylon, idolatry, Adultery, dishonesty, disunity, violence, revenge, racism, bigotry, whatever. Those things characterized Babylon in those days. They're characterized in our world today. And this dirty devil who's just like Nebuchadnezzar, he wants to put us back into the world and he wants us to speak, live, and act like the world. There's a parallel. Life. Like Nebuchadnezzar, the devil tries to what? To reassign us. He wants us to serve him and fulfill his agenda. And he wants us to serve a pantheon of false gods. Self, people, you know, others, money, sex, power, booze, dope. You see the parallel that's happening? It's right there. Now, earlier we read Romans 12, 2, and I'll read it again. Paul said this to the Romans. 
the Roman, the Christians were scattered throughout Rome in these various churches. He said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so as believers, if you're a Christian, if not, I get it, but if you are, Rather than becoming relocated, reprogrammed, and reassigned, what? Believers are to become non-conformed to this world, transformed, and renewed. That's the exhortation in Romans 12 too. How do we become transformed and renewed? Through the power of God's Word and through the power of His Spirit. We have to read the Bible. We have to study the Bible. We have to pray the Bible. When we spend time in God's Word and apply it to our lives, our thinking will become transformed. Our speaking will become transformed. We'll become gospel fluent. And our behavior will be transformed. It's the Word of God that does this. Hebrews 4.12, it is, it is powerful. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. And it cuts right through to the core of who we are. And it transforms who we are. If we get in the Word of God and stay in the Word of God and we develop a discipline and we keep coming back to it and it's, it's the source of our growth, it, it's, it's, the, you know, it's, we, you know, it's our authority and all of these beautiful things that God has intended His Word to be to us. If we do that, we will, we read and study and pray, we will experience renewal in every area of our life. You know... When people say, okay, Phil, I knew you before you were a Christian. Wow. And I see how you are now. And one of the guys I used to work with when I worked for Carl, he would always beg for the old Phil to come back because he had so much fun with that idiot. With that pagan who drunk, drank and drove and who was addicted to porn and just a mess. And, and people say, well, how did you... What's happened to you? First, Jesus has happened. Secondly, at a very early on in my Christian faith, I committed myself to being in God's Word. I'm not the same person that I was because of God's Word. It changes you. If you get frustrated with yourself and your behavior, like I do, maybe the question you need to ask is, maybe I don't spend enough time in God's Word where the power is, where the transformation is, where the sanctification takes place. Now, I get it. It happens through communion and through prayer and these other things. But I tell you what, the Bible is primary to your transformation. And if you're a believer and you don't spend time in the Bible, you're not going to get anywhere. And you're going to be frustrated It changes us. We, as we engage in God's Word, we, we grow in our understanding of God's will because His will is, is completely laid out in His Word. We grow in our understanding of God's will and we will become better and better at identifying and avoiding the devil's schemes. Some of us have, we're just not even aware of his schemes and we get so wrapped up in things because we don't 
understand the word of God and will of God, and we can't discern the difference between what Satan wants for us and what, the, and what God wants for us. The only way for you to know and to learn and to grow in understanding of God's will is to spend time in His Word. And the only way to know your adversary, the way that you need to know him, is to spend time in God's Word, where God reveals to us what the adversary is about and how he comes at us with temptations and all these things. I mean, it's not rocket science. And I understand it's, it's a, we're busy and we've got all these things to do and you know, all this stuff. One of the devil's great strategies with believers today is to keep them busy with stuff. Stuff that doesn't even have any eternal significance or value. What's your hobby? I like guns. I'm going to try really, really hard to take them into heaven with me. You don't need those here, dummy. Okay. Craigslist. Yeah, right, like you could sell it there. You're building a car. Hey, I get it. I like hobbies. You know, Mike, you like, you like the, uh, Mike's into the, the older cars and all that. That's great. I like hobbies. You ain't going to drive that thing into heaven. I'm not taking my guns with me. We just put so much time into things, and I get it. It's fun, and I think God intends those things to be a blessing, certainly not an idol, but... Boy, if I spent half as much, if I spent half as much time in God's Word that I do in things, I wouldn't even touch the ground when I walk. Oh, I mean, I would. I'd, I'd be even more different. I'd be more like Jesus. That's the goal. You see, when we spend time in God's Word, we grow in our understanding of His will, and we become better and better equipped at identifying and avoiding the schemes of the devil. Because let me tell you right now, he is just like Nebuchadnezzar. He is pulling every one of us back. He wants us back. He is mad. He is ticked. He is inflamed. He is enraged that Jesus has taken us out of his kingdom. He, he can't stand the fact that we've been brought out of... If you're a believer, you believe in Jesus Christ by grace through faith. You love Jesus. You've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and Satan hates you, and he hates Jesus because of that. So, of course, he's going to work his magic. He wants to relocate. He wants to reprogram, bring you back to where you were, and he wants to reassign you. Serve me and serve my gods. Think of the time that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness... Satan was attempting to reassign Jesus. Just bow to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I made the kingdoms. I don't, <laughs> no thanks. You're offering the Lord of the universe the kingdoms of the earth. He created them all. Oh, he comes though and he comes and he tempts and he says and he speaks and he makes things look really good and he puts sugar on them and, oh man. I have a couple questions for you. Has the devil been working to relocate, reprogram, and reassign you? Has he been successful in one area or another? I struggle with reprogramming in the areas of speech and stewardship. I say things that I regret way too often. 
And sometimes I misuse the resources God has given me for His glory, my time, my talent, my treasure. And I'll just be transparent. The devil is constantly working me with my tongue and with my time, talent, and treasure, trying to get me to invest in things that are useless or squandering my time. I give in to the devil in these areas from time to time, and I'll tell you what, it bothers me. I don't like living like a Babylonian. I don't like living like a Babylonian. It goes against my new nature, and worse, it grieves the Holy Spirit. What do you struggle with? What do you struggle with? Maybe some of you have just been flat out relocated. Man, you're just in the world. You're all about Babylon. Maybe you're like me and you just struggle with the reprogramming. A couple of points there and that you deal with that. Maybe some of you have just been out reassigned. You're just not serving the Lord at all. You're all about yourself. That's an idol. I'm going to leave you with three verses. And I think these are just so essential. First one is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hey, man. You've been... No, I said hey, man, not amen. <laughs> you can say amen in a second. You're getting ahead of me with the amen. That's okay. Amen. Amen to that scripture. That's, that's one of the best pieces of good news I've ever heard. That means that if I have been duped by Satan and been relocated in some sense or, or reprogrammed in some sense or reassigned, if I've been a fool, if I've been living in sin, what this says is if I'm willing to come before the Lord and confess these things before Him, He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins. That's wonderful. That's the gospel. So, there is hope. You might be thinking, well, I'm so entangled in these things. I can't get out. Well, why don't you just try getting with the Lord and confessing to Him and asking for His forgiveness and receive His blood that cleanses us. You can do that. What an invitation. Second one would be Psalm 121, verse 2. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You will never be victorious against Nebuchadnezzar, against the devil, against Babylon, against the world, without the help of God. You need His power. You need His strength. You need His armor. Ephesians 6. Our help comes from the Lord. It don't come from Pastor Phil. It don't come from Elder Bruce. It doesn't come from your wife. They're great. We love them. I don't love me. You know what I'm saying. Our help comes from the Lord. He is our strength. He is our source of power and strength. Our source of mercy and grace. He has provided for us in and through Jesus Christ. You want to begin to move forward? You start getting the Word of God and you start asking for God's power in your life. As a good father, He gives to His children graciously good gifts. Our help comes from the Lord. So don't attempt to do this on your own. Call upon the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Last verse, 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. The Lord is faithful. 
He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. I love that verse. And it seems like in my head there's a contradiction there. He'll strengthen and, and, and protect me from the evil one. How come the evil one has so much influence in my life and causes me such great harm at times? Well, this verse doesn't say that that can't happen. In the ultimate sense, you belong to Jesus and Satan. What, what, did, what did God say to Satan when Satan wanted to destroy Job? Oh, you can tempt him and mess with him, but you can't kill him. You can't kill him. He's mine. The Lord will allow us to be beaten up a little bit by the devil at times. It's for our own good and sanctification. But in the ultimate sense, Satan can never permanently relocate, reprogram, and reassign you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So in the ultimate sense, the Lord is faithful and He does strengthen and protect us against the evil one. I tell you what, I I feel that if the Lord in His high priestly duty and role and position, the Lord Jesus, because He cares for us as our great high priest, if He didn't do that, we would succumb to Satan fully. We'd just be toasted because Satan is far more powerful than we are. No, it's the Lord. He he forgives us and, and He helps us, and he strengthens and protects us. Call upon Jesus today, friend.